Georgetown Medical is part of the Jesuit tradition of cura personalis, which means care of the whole person. If that describes the approach to medicine that you'd like to take, both in medical school and beyond, tune in. Georgetown University School of Medicine's Associate Dean for Admissions and Financial Aid is our special guest today. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 459th episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me. Are you ready to apply to your dream medical schools? Are you competitive at your target programs? Acceptance Med School Admissions Quiz can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accept.com slash medquiz, complete the quiz, and you'll not only get an assessment, but tips on how to improve your qualifications and your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, use the calculator at accept.com slash medquiz to obtain your free assessment. Our guest today is Dr. Ellen Dugan, Senior Associate Dean for Admissions and Financial Aid at Georgetown University School of Medicine. She is a Hoya through and through. She earned her MD at Georgetown University School of Medicine and then completed her residency training in emergency medicine also at Georgetown. Following four years of service in the National Health Service in rural West Virginia, Dr. Dugan returned to Georgetown and has been on the faculty at Georgetown since 1990. She served on the admissions committee for 10 years prior to becoming the associate dean. In addition to her admissions duties, she is an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and formerly served as the vice chair and interim academic chair in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Georgetown. Welcome, Dr. Dugan, to Admissions Straight Talk. Thank you very much. Pleasure to have you here today. Can you give us an overview of Georgetown University School of Medicine's curriculum program, just you know, for those listeners that, that aren't that familiar with it? It's, uh, I'm happy to. That's our new curriculum, which basically they started revising it in 2015-16, and our graduating class of 2021 was the first class to go all the way through. So it's it's fairly new. It's uh, divided up into three phases. The foundational phase, or the first 18 months of first and second year, is made up of six blocks of core content. They're organ system-based modules that integrate basic science disciplines with doctoring training, if you will. And the doctoring courses are called Cura Personalis, referring to uh, and uniting to develop professional skills uh, that are unique to doctoring, like physical diagnosis, communications, ethics. This runs through all the blocks. Um, there are also intercessions that are a week long that are emphasizing topics critical to physicians in healthcare. Uh, an example would be like the opioid epidemic, and then they have medical student grand rounds all through the first three years. Then the core clinical phase is the third year, which is blocked out into 48-week core clerkships. Those would be medicine and surgery, OBGYN, pediatrics, family medicine, psychiatry, neurology, and three two-week selectives or electives. And then there's the advanced clinical phase, which is the fourth year, and that's made up of 37 weeks. And three of those four-week blocks are required. One is four weeks in emergency medicine, and then the other two are four-week blocks in uh, doing acting internships, where they function as interns so that they get the confidence and the skills to hit the ground running for residency. And then, the best part of it, they have 24 weeks of electives, so they can really basically design their entire fourth-year course other than those first three blocks that they have to do. So it's really uh, gives them great freedom. 
And is the, is the elective block always at the end of the fourth year or, or does that vary depending upon the, the student? There's, they can do the emergency medicine later on. What they want to do in those first few blocks is when they're getting ready for residency, they sort of hone those blocks into the specialty they want to go into so right. that they have letters yeah. and, and clinical experience in that particular field. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, what would you like listeners to know about Georgetown that many applicants don't realize or what myths would you like to dispel? I mean, there are always certain memes out there about schools that are not necessarily correct. Well, the biggest one is that you don't have to be Catholic to be at Georgetown. Um, we are one of four Jesuit medical schools in the United States, and uh, that gives us that distinction. Another myth that people don't realize is that we accept both international and DACA students, and that I think the key thing that is that we're not looking for the who would fit our school, but we're looking for applicants that have different backgrounds, different lived experiences that add to the class in their own unique ways. And the most important thing for us, because we our Jesuit institution is that they embody our Jesuit mission of cure personalis, our care for the whole person. And we're not just caring for patients physically, but we are also caring for their emotional, spiritual, social well-being. And the other big dedication to service is our uh, students work with the underserved and the marginalized populations. It's a really big part of their education. An interesting fact is that uh, this first year class, 70% of them did not come into us straight out of college. Um, they come from all different experiences where the gap year used to be frowned upon. It now seems to be the norm more than the exception. And then I think there's a preconceived notion that this school is extremely competitive and that although it's really difficult, the student body isn't. It's more a collaborative environment and culture and the preclinical curriculum is pass fail. And we don't submit rank lists to residency programs. So they're not ever really being pit against each other. And the hope with the pass-fail is that the students are learning to learn, not to learn to take step one. And with that stressor removed, that they will actually retain the information and assimilate it into their knowledge base. All right, great. Now, you've mentioned Cura Personalis and the Jesuit mission several times in a really practical way. I mean, you mentioned it in terms of the program. I think one of the blocks is kind of devoted to it. But in a really practical way, how does it, how does it show up as a difference in the in the teaching? Is it, is it possible to give an example? Well, there's a few things that we do, but um, it's based through the, the curriculum, as I just mentioned, but they are required as part of their graduation requirement to do 20 hours of service to the underserved. And most of our students end up doing more than that. We have a Hoya clinic, which is a student-run clinic. The fourth years run it with um, attendings that supervise. And first, second, third, and fourth years can all volunteer. And it's a clinic that is for homeless families that are in transitional housing in the southeast area of DC. And we also now collaborate with the law students in caring and advocating for patients' health issues, not just their health issues, but the law students help us with their legal issues, their social issues, all in the spirit of Cura and social justice and alleviating healthcare disparities. And then we have the Jesuit Mission and Reflection Dinners, which are small groups that you do Jesuit readings and reflections. And then they also, the students talk about ways to enhance the Jesuit curriculum and mission in the curriculum. And then we also have the Racial Justice Committee for Change, which is a dedicated group of students, staff, and faculty that pursue sustainable change in diversity, equity, and inclusion at the School of Medicine and throughout the Georgetown community, the University Medical Center. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Now, turning to admissions, okay? Um, mm -hmm. Georgetown's secondary application is automatic, as I understand from the website. There's no screening and contains two short essays and one long one. What are you trying to glean from the secondary that you don't get from the primary? 
Well, it's more specifics to us. Um, so the essay, the primary essay is, is the Why Georgetown essay. And that's where we're trying to figure out what interests you about Georgetown, what resonates with you about Georgetown, what is it that you are seeking from Georgetown, and what would you bring to us? And then the first short, uh, it's not really an essay, but it's like a question, but it's asking the applicant how their values, life experiences, and identity contribute to our priorities, which are racial justice, addressing healthcare inequities, exacerbated in this particular question, exacerbated by the recent pandemic. So it's specific more to the pandemic health inequities. And then the second short question is um, a space for somebody to add additional information. Like people will put in there like why their MCAT was bad, why they were ill that day, or they'll put in if they're, let's say they um, got into graduate school after they applied and uh, they want to tell us where they are, what they're doing now. And so they could, there's a space for that as well. Or issues even that came up during the pandemic that have affected their grades or their health, whatever. Great. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. What are some of the more common mistakes that you see applicants make in approaching Georgetown secondary? And I don't mean typos and stuff like that. I mean, more conceptual or errors in that. I, would, I wouldn't say they're mistakes. I think it's more of a lack of an understanding of who we are, what we stand for, and have they actually read our mission statement? Do they actually know anything about us? You know, the, the typo thing, like you said, if it's very short, double-spaced, giant font, you know, <laughs> that tells you a lot. And we do get those. Right, right. And could you walk us through or walk the listener through the process an application goes through once they hit, they submit the secondary? What happens then? What happens to it until they hopefully get that interview invitation? It's a fairly long process, but once it's complete, it goes to the committee for interview, to evaluation for interview. And that's based on a holistic approach, looking at the whole package, meaning not just your grades, your MCATs, but their lived experiences, their clinical experience research. Uh, most importantly, their service, not most important, but very important is their service dedication and their letters of reference, leadership, and also the depth of their application, how they assimilated themselves into the community of their school. What have they done to give back to their community? But we also take into consideration difficulties people have had with COVID, meaning you know family issues, loved ones being ill, Wi-Fi, people that went home and didn't have a designated quiet space. And so that's all part of it too. And also a lot of the schools went past fail across the board and you didn't have an option to do grades, to get grades for your science courses. So we also take that into consideration as well, because that was a huge difficulty that students faced and are still facing actually. Right, makes, makes sense. Well, just going back to the, the COVID, the thought occurred to me, one of the things about COVID is it also, I think, gave applicants an opportunity to show initiative, to show commitment to, to community service. So I think, you know, you've encouraged them to provide context for, let's say, a dip in grades or whatever was caused by the pandemic or a bad MCAT. But it's also an opportunity for them to highlight their commitment to the values that Georgetown uh, represents and holds dear, as well as, like I said, initiative. So that I, I'm... I'm constantly telling applicants balance that. Yes, and that so many of them have done so many wonderful things. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, even online tutoring and um, underserved children, and you know, just things that they couldn't go out, they had things to do, or they were in vaccination clinics helping exactly. out, and all those things that are just adds to, especially who we are and what we would like to see. And it's you know all about community service, not just to the underserved, but the service to your community as well. Whatever it is, whether it's well served or underserved. Mm -hmm. Now, this episode will air March 1. I assume by then interviews are finished at Georgetown for this cycle. 
How should an applicant approach reapplication to medical school, medical school and specifically to Georgetown if they haven't gotten an interview invitation or they've already heard that they're rejected? What we tell um, applicants or reapplicants, especially to just go back to our website, take a real good look at it critically in terms of their application in, in reference to what we're looking for. Um, look at their experiences and see where they might have gaps as to what we're looking for, because not all schools are looking for what we are, and we're not looking for what all other schools are looking for. So what we're also really interested in is what they're doing with their time in this gap year. And a lot of what we understand don't have uh, a job immediately when they apply, but if they give us an update of what they're doing, because the gaps are not helpful to us. And there's a lot of time between now and the fall or, you know, the summer when they start to apply that they can actually find those opportunities to, you know, uh, embellish their application. So you're, are you open to updates like in the course of the application cycle? Mm-hmm. We okay. actually have a, a portal in our system that mm-hmm. is called post-submission update. So they could go in and it's actually listed under the banner of the secondary. Okay, um, great. And there's a portal there for post-submission updates so they can update anything, you know, send it all in there as well. Wonderful. All right. Now, I assume that interviews this cycle were all virtual and probably the last cycle too. When travel eases, as hopefully it will, mm-hmm. as the pandemic <laughs> recedes, hopefully, do you plan to go back to in-person or mixing in-person and, and virtual as we're doing now? I mean, what, what are your plans? Well, as, as my colleague said, that horse is out of the barn now. Um, <laughs> anything good came out of this pandemic, it's that this virtual interview provided such an opportunity for people that might not have applied to us or been able to come and interview because it's so expensive, you know, getting hotel rooms and traveling and food and all of those things that I think this is one of the reasons why everybody's applications were off the charts this past year or the last cycle and why ours is still big, which for this year as well, but it's, it's not as high, but um, I think the hybrid version is the way we're going to need to go. And I think it gave an opportunity, especially for disadvantaged underrepresented students to be able to interview with us and not feel like they were at a disadvantage because they didn't, couldn't come to the school. So I think that was, it's a big uh, difference. Although, you know, in-person is always better, but you know, if that's the opportunity for them to interview with us and that's their only option, then I think that's a great idea. So I think we're probably going to go with a hybrid going forward. Okay. There's no question that the the financial burden of going to all to schools, especially for multiple schools that invited an applicant to interview was significant. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are advantages also made for the applicant to see the school, meet with students, et cetera. So right, right. Um, we're actually we we're um, thinking of doing something in the spring that would be I don't think we're going to be able to do it because visitors are still not really back on campus because the Omicron went up again on the on-campus, not a lot, but that we would have small groups come sort of like a second look day where they could, they're already accepted applicants. So there's no advantage to coming or not coming. So they, we invite them to come and we'd have like a tour of the school another student panel. They could talk to students and, you know, uh, do a few more things that is like a second look day, but um, not virtual. So that was, we're hoping that maybe we might be able to do this later in the spring. How do you look at candidates who faced mental health issues in the past? As you know, no one is is required to disclose any health or mental health issues. So if they choose to share that with us, it depends on how they present it and what it is they're trying to tell us by giving us this information. So we have to look at this on a case-by-case basis because it's, it's very personal and it's something we take very seriously. Um, but again, it's on a case by case basis. But it's not an automatic no either. 
No. And basically the same question, but for a different category of, of applicant, both of them are very troubled by this aspect of their application. And the second group would be somebody who has a, an academic infraction or perhaps a misdemeanor on their record. Mm -hmm. Or a felony. Or a felony, that's true. <laughs> Again, we look you've seen it all, I'm sure. If you've been doing this long <laughs> enough, you've seen it all. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, the misdemeanor is interesting because if it's a misdemeanor, some states will say a speeding ticket is a misdemeanor or other states don't. So it sounds really terrible if you have a misdemeanor listed on there. And right. so it's it's in the explanation of what that academic infraction is, what the misdemeanor is, what the felony is. Again, it's more on a case-by-case -case basis, how it's presented. And basically, sometimes to say, you know, are they remorseful? What did they learn from this? Those sorts of things. Would distance from the event also play a, fat, play a role? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Longer you, the further you are from it with a good clean record, the better it is, I would assume. Mm -hmm. Okay. How was, uh, you, you alluded to the application volume a minute ago. How was application volume this cycle compared to 2021, which was the big one, and the 2019 <laughs> 2020 cycle the year before it was COVID was just kind of coming on at the, at the end of that cycle? 2021, we had uh, 17,881 applications. Wow. So we were up 24% um, and applications were up nationally 18%. And then this current cycle, we have 15,993 applicants. So we're down 11%. Uh, nationally, they're down 12%. So comparing that to the pre-pandemic 2019 to 2020, we had 14,464 applications. So we're actually, this current cycle, if you leave out the 2021 cycle, right. we're up about 10 and a half percent. So um, yeah. usually that up or down is about two or three percent. So it's very interesting to see. And I think yeah, it, I was looking at the numbers recently and they're kind of going like this, basically maybe a little squiggle along the line and then all of a sudden it's whoop. So <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. That's, yeah, that's pretty much what I expected. And do you have any, any uh, idea what's coming next time, next year, next cycle? No, we don't. I think a lot of it is is going to depend on. I mean, the the students. You know, even last year, they're it's the whole grading thing for them too, and the courses that they're able to take and their experience have been discontinued because of it all. And it's still up and down that way. And like right now, with Omicron going down, it looks like they may have the opportunity to have those experiences again uh, in person. So it's going to be different. We also were warned by the AAMC that you might see people with um, criminal records because they were in demonstrations and um, they were protesting and, you know, they, you know, gave us a heads up that you may see this and it's, you know, actually it's more of them advocating than anything. So, but I thought that was an interesting point that they brought up. Yeah, that is. Yeah, you're right. Um, on a forward-looking note, obviously, if the last cycle is just about over in terms of your evaluation process, and it's pretty close to it. Next cycle is just around the corner. What advice would you give to med school applicants planning to apply to Georgetown this upcoming cycle for 2023 matriculation, or even looking further ahead to 2024 matriculation? So it's kind of two different categories, but if you could. Um, and it's, you know, you look at these students that went through the, their first year of medical school and it was all virtual um, last year. They brought them in for anatomy in January, the first year students, if they wanted to be in there, they had the option of doing it. I'm not sure how you do anatomy and dissections virtually, but um, <laughs> they gave them the option and most of them all came in for it, but that was the first opportunity they had to be together. So I think looking forward, 
you know, hopefully we will be rid of this plague that we are all going through and that they will be able to all be together from day one. Um, right now, the students just went back again. They were pulled out, but they went back January 31st to, to in-person. So it's it's gonna be, I think, and a lot of people were looking at this as happening and saying, mm, I think I might put off applying to medical school for another year just to make sure that I don't wanna be sitting in my bathroom all day long and, and listening to Zoom sessions. So I think we have to see what's on the horizon in terms of the pandemic and you know make choices that way. But I think for the ones that are hell bent on applying this summer, you know, where we open up again in June, that you know, you look at these next few months that you have and look at our criteria or look at the school's criteria that you're going to be looking at and see if there's ways that you could tweak your application, get those experiences in person, especially clinically. It's really important that you actually have some sense of an idea of what you're getting yourself into. I think shadowing is a huge part. A scribing job in the summer is also wonderful. You actually, uh, it's well thought of as great solid clinical right. experience and, you know, things like that research, all those things that if you could fit something in now that, that gets those experiences in and not just to check a box, but because this is what you're interested in, you're going into medicine and this is what you want to, you want to learn and, and inform yourself of. Um, do I want to be a, an advocate, a scientist and a healer, or do I want to just be a scientist? So I think there's lots of things that they need to think about before they make that big jump because it's a lot it's a long road. It's a wonderful road, but it's really difficult. Two questions come to mind as, as a result of your last answer. Is research a, a nice to have when applying to Georgetown or is it pretty much a, a must have? As I said, we, we do the holistic. If somebody has a great application and they're little or they have no research or they just have a little bit of research, we take that into consideration. It's really nice if they have some kind of research. It doesn't have to be clinically based or translational. A lot of the science majors do they work in the biology department, let's say, and they do even, uh, you know, bench work. That's okay. They just have had an experience uh, with a research experience. They know what assays are, et cetera, you know, how to, you know, come up with a project. They work with a PI. So they have an experience with it. We like to see that. It's not a deal breaker, but we really do like to see that. Okay, great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And what about, you know, Shadowing, you mentioned, is very, very valuable from an admissions perspective, obviously scribing, I assume EMT work, anything in a clinical setting mm -hmm. allows them to see what they're getting into. Mm -hmm. But what about virtual shadowing? How do you feel about that? I think the virtual shadowing, a lot of them are basically they are in a Zoom session with a physician and the physician will tell them about their background and what they've done or they'll walk them through a case. It's not the same as seeing a physician interact with a patient and seeing those nuances of what kind of question to ask to get really to find out from the patient what they really want. And that's, that's such a skill that you learn when you see a physician with patients that uh, I, I think the virtual, I mean, it's the next best thing. It's for some people, it's the only thing they, you know, they have, but you, you really need to see that dynamic up close and personal, as I like to say. The other thing about the dynamic is that it's, Whenever the physician walks into a room, he doesn't really know what he's going to find. Right. I mean, there might be some, some background in terms of the, the record, but is the, is the client in a good mood? Is, are they, is, the client, is the patient rather in a good mood? Is there a bad mood? Is the family there? Is it the family? And when those interactions can, can run the gamut. Yeah, you're an emergency room physician. I don't have to tell you this. It's like in the emergency room, this is their worst day of their life. They're coming in there. They're vulnerable. They're scared. They are out of control. And it, you have such a little window to make that connection with them, to make them feel like they know they're going to be taken care of and well taken care of. 
And so those are the things that you want to see and have an idea of. Um, not that everybody has to shadow in the emergency department, but it, just that patient-physician interaction is so key. Okay, thank you very much for that. Now, any question you would have liked me to ask you that I haven't asked? I think um, one that I think um, I would have liked you to ask is, um, what are our support services like for our students? Great question. Consider so, it asked. Thank you. <laughs> As I like to say, uh, once you are one of ours, you are ours uh, for life, and we're going to do everything we can to help you thrive, to help you become an excellent physician, and to be supported. And this is really difficult, but it, as I said before, wonderful, but it's so much information coming at you at once and you have to learn how to apply it. It's a different way of studying. It's a different way of applying your knowledge. And so everybody's smart when they come in, but then people are just astounded when they start to struggle or they have a little hiccup and they just, they don't understand. So it's really important that they have these support services, not just academically. And we have an office of student learning and they do great things with our students in terms of um, tutoring sessions, uh, with uh, together or tutoring sessions alone. They do all kinds of things with their academics. And, I, and as they say, you know, if you're struggling, we will find you. If you don't find us, we will find you. It's our job. And so we also have the Office of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, which basically works for the institution to have a culture and an environment of equity and diversity and inclusion and to be there for those students that, that need that help too. We have bias training, we have pre-med pipeline programs, commitment to racial justice and um, our RJCC, as I told you. We also have the CAPS program, which is the counseling and uh, psychiatric services. Uh, we have two psychologists that are designated just to the medical school. And then there's the CAPS's other counseling arenas that are open for our students. And then we have advisors. We have their, as I say, they're advised to death. We have preclinical advisors. There's, that could be a staff member or a physician for the first and second year students. And that person's there to help them figure out things as they come up and how to navigate things that come up. And then they also are there to help them start figuring out what it is they might want to do for a career. And then their second and third year, they have a clinical advisor who is a physician. And that person is there to, again, help them navigate things, but also help them figure out, continue to figure out what they want to do. But also when the time comes, figure out what block streams they want to do in their third year that might help them figure out what it is they want to do or what sorts of things would be best to do in the summers, those kinds of things. And then the clinical advisor is also there to help the fourth years navigate this dense morass of a match system for residency. It's really complicated. And not only do you have a clinical advisor, let's say all my fourth years that I clinically advise are not going into emergency medicine. So you'll also have a specialty advisor. So I have one going into neurosurgery. So they would have, she, was, she has me and she has a neurosurgeon or uh, one going into paid, so me and a pediatrician. Even if you're going into emergency medicine, you would have me and another emergency medicine physician. So it's, they get a lot of support during this time and they help you figure out what letters of recommendation you need, what kind of way rotations you might wanna do to for a specific spot for residency. They help you figure out your, your CV, how to, how to write your CV, how to do your personal statement. So there's a lot of support. And I think, beside from the fact that our, our students are most excellent, I think this is a huge help in terms of them matching in the residency. We do really well. And they also have a research advisor to figure out what project they wanna do. They have a requirement uh, for graduation to do a research project and it's called an independent scholarly project. So they have to do that somewhere over their four years. Um, so there's a research advisor for that. And then they have the big SIBs or like the second year students are assigned to a first year student to be there as a point person to help them. There's peer to peer tutoring where the upperclassmen tutor the first and second years if they need it. We have an ombudsman for you know, private issues that come up. Um, and then we have these academic families where groups of 10 from each school are put in 
these societies, which are made up of first, second, third, and fourth year students, alumni, faculty, staff. And so they do things together in terms of social, social things that are fun. They do service projects together. They do reflection. They do dinners together. So it's just so that you're not just part of your class, you're part of the school as a, as a community, as a group. Um, my days, it was just, you knew your classmates and maybe a couple ahead of you and behind you and that was it. So this is a, a really great way that we sort of incorporate everybody into the, the school that you're not just, not just part of your class or yourself, you're part of the whole place. Sounds like you're putting care of personalis in terms of your students too. Exactly. I actually have an example that, that uh, I don't know if you know about. Um, and I know a woman whose son is at Georgetown, mm -hmm. and she told me that her son was accepted. She was very, very happy. And then she told me that an opportunity came up for him to, I guess, co-author a book that it wasn't classic scientific research, but it was somewhat related to, I think, medical ethics. Mm -hmm. And um, he really wanted to do this project. And the, the woman I was talking to was, des was definitely afraid that he was going to blow his acceptance. And he contacted Georgetown and Georgetown, seeing his serious interest in this project, allowed him to defer. And I know deferrals are not given very often, but again, in looking at this particular fellow and, and uh, both his interests and his needs, and you, I guess, felt it was just, or the school felt it was, it was best for all. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I think that is an example to me of looking at the whole student, so. Exactly, and you know, we have one now that's out doing a Fulbright scholarship. He got deferred for that, you know, and it's just, you know, there's, there's places for that, people that got deployed, um, those kinds of things. So there's very good legitimate reasons. And if it's enriching the students, you know, uh, education and opportunities, then, you know, that's, that's a, a very good reason to give someone a deferral. Right. Well, thank you very much. Dr. Dugan, I think we're almost out of time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can listeners learn more about Georgetown University School of Medicine? Well, we are all over the place. We um, are all on all the social media. Certainly go to our website, which is som.georgetown.edu and look for the uh, admissions piece. And uh, you can also read about our Racial Justice Committee for Change. It's front and center on there. And all kinds of information is on our website, but we are also very active on social media. And it's a great place to actually hear from students too. That some of them do a day in the life of a Georgetown student and they have little videos. So there's all kinds of information that you can get. We also have information sessions that if you go on our website, it's in the under the admissions tab that we have them several times a month that you can um, just join a Zoom link and learn more about us. And you're able to ask questions because uh, it's, we have students on these panels and we also have our, our outreach person. So there's lots of opportunities to be uh, to get more information and actually get it live, which is really nice. And That's then even great. if you uh, email us with questions, we will uh, answer you within usually within 24 hours. Wonderful. Okay, great. We'll include links in the show notes at exhibit.com slash 459. That's exhibit.com slash 459 to Georgetown University School of Medicine, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to you listeners. Listener, thank you too for joining us for our 459th episode. If you find the show worthwhile, please subscribe. Make sure you don't miss any future shows, be they with deans, admissions directors, professors, current students, and test prep pros or alumni doing great things. And final quick reminder, don't miss the med school admissions quiz. Find out if you're really ready to apply and competitive at your target schools. Take the quiz at accepted.com slash medquiz today. This is Admissions Straight Talk produced by Accepted and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week.